Hi church, if you don't know me, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors. We're currently in our sermon series through 2 Corinthians called Bold. And I have the privilege to preach the word of God to us today. So let's get right into it. Now, if you've ever applied to a university or if you've ever applied for a job, then you've probably had to provide a list of people as references. And those references most likely had to write a letter of recommendation for you. And in that letter of recommendation, they essentially write about how well they know you your particular strengths and weaknesses, and how confident they are in recommending you to be accepted by the university or the job position that you're applying for. So we're probably all familiar with the idea of references and letters of recommendation for these areas of school and jobs. But think for a moment. What would it be like to have references and letters of recommendation for your life? If the people around you had to give an honest, straightforward evaluation of how you live your life, what would they say? What would they commend? What would they praise? What would they question? What would they not admire about you? Or even more, if you're a Christian, what would it be like to have references or letters of recommendation for your followership of Christ? Would others commend you as a Christian? Would they hold you up as an example of what it looks like to follow Christ? Would they say that you live your life in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ that you profess? These are all pertinent questions for the passage that we're going to look at uh, today, where the Apostle Paul essentially writes brief letters of recommendation or commendations for different people within his letter of 2 Corinthians. So the one thing for today is be commendable for living according to the gospel. Be commendable for living according to the gospel. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, and we'll go through chapter 9, verse 5. And just want to give a bit of context before we jump into today's passage. So the church in Corinth was first started by Paul and his companions. But then after he left, the church fell into all kinds of sin. They started following false teachers. And then they started even rejecting Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, even though he was the one that started this church. But after several painful letters and visits, Paul got word from Titus that the church had repented and they were eager to see Paul again. So Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians to send ahead of him before he visits in person. So we're currently in the middle of chapters 8 and 9, which are all about the official collection of funds that Paul has been organizing among the different Gentile or non-Jewish churches for the persecuted and poverty-stricken Jewish church in Jerusalem. And Paul, at this point in the letter where, uh, where we're at, he's telling the Corinthian church that he's going to be sending Titus and two unnamed brothers ahead of him before he arrives so that they can help get them ready with the funds that they've promised to contribute. Uh, but as he does that, he first gives a series of commendations or letters of recommendation, if you will, for these three brother, uh, brothers that he's sending to them, explaining who they are and what's commendable about them. So that's where we are in today's passage. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16 uh, through chapter 9, verse 5. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered to by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. 
And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. This is God's word. So in this passage, Paul commands five parties. First, Titus. Second, the famous brother. Third, Paul and his companions. Fourth, the earnest brother. And then fifth, the Corinthian church themselves. So we're going to look at this passage in those five parts, but we're going to pay attention more specifically at what they were commended for and how it was in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see that what they were commended for should actually be what every Christian and every church should be commended for as followers of Jesus Christ. So what were they and what, would, what should we as Christians and churches be commended for? First, earnest care for others. Second, a reputation of gospel service. Third, honorability in the sight of God and man. Fourth, proven earnestness in many matters. And fifth, ready, willing, and generous giving. So first, earnest care for others. Chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 say this once again. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So Titus is the first person that Paul commends. Titus earnestly cares for the Corinthian church. And notice that Paul likens Titus' love for them as the same earnest care I, Paul, have for you. And just think of the kind of love and care that Paul had for this Corinthian church. You know, remember, Paul was faithful to them even when they rejected him as an apostle, only to listen to other false teachers. Paul continued to visit them and write letters to them, pleading with them to turn back to the true gospel, even when they were responded with hostility. You know, imagine you're a father or mother, and the children whom you've loved, provided for, cared for, guided their whole lives, one day say to you, you're not my father, you're not my mother anymore and they effectively try to disown you and get you out of their lives. Imagine you're a husband or a wife, and the spouse whom you've loved, cared for, sacrificed for, gave yourself fully to, says to you one day, I don't love you anymore. I'd rather be with this other person. I don't ever want to see you again. And then they file for divorce. You know, that was the kind of pain and suffering that Paul endured with the Corinthian church that he helped start. Yet he earnestly pursued them for years, even when things seemed to be getting worse, uh, with no guarantee that things were ever going to change, ever get better, until, by the grace of God, they finally repented. So that was the earnest care that Paul had for the Corinthian church. And that was the same earnest care that Titus had for the Corinthian church. Now, how was this earnest care for others in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Simply, that's exactly how God has loved us. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel or good news of Jesus Christ is that God created us in love and provided for us for our every need. But then in our sinful rebellion, we have all turned away from him. We have despised his mercy and grace in our lives and each of us has turned to our own way. But because of his abundant love and earnest care for us, God sent his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life we were supposed to live and to die the death that we were supposed to die for our sins. So that if we repent of our sins and believe in Christ alone as our Lord and Savior, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be adopted as sons and daughters of God and we can be raised to new and eternal life with Christ. If you've received that kind of love from God, if you've received that kind of earnest care from God, then the evidence of having truly received that gospel is a life that overflows with earnest care for others, especially for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But look again at what Paul says in verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. You know, Paul does not thank Titus for his earnest care for the Corinthians. He thanks God. Why is that? Because God put that earnest care in his heart. And when did God do that? When Titus first experienced God's earnest care for him and first put his faith in Jesus Christ. And how can Paul say so confidently that Titus has the same earnest care for the Corinthians that he has for them? Because both Paul and Titus have experienced the same earnest care from God for them through the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, what do you do when you hit your natural limits of love? What resources do you have beyond yourself to continue to have earnest care for those that have hurt you? If you only love those who love you, there's really nothing special or commendable about that. As believers in Jesus Christ, what do we do when we hit our natural limits of love? We look to our crucified Savior who said on the cross for sinners like us, forgive them for they know not what they do. For believers, if you find yourself at the end of your love for others, look to Jesus to find more love to give. Take your eyes off of the one who has wounded you and look to the one you have wounded and see how his love still overflows for you. For those who are believers in Jesus Christ, God has put into our hearts the same earnest care that he has for us. So may we live according to the gospel we've received and so show that kind of earnest care for others. So Titus was commended for his earnest care for the Corinthian church. And the second commendation is a reputation of gospel service. Verse 18 says this, With him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So along with Titus, another unnamed brother in Christ is being sent to the Corinthian church. Even though he's unnamed in this letter, he was apparently famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Literally, this verse reads, the brother whose praise in the gospel is through all the churches. So this brother's activity in the gospel perhaps included preaching, but I don't think we should limit our understanding of his activity in the gospel as only preaching but it can be understood broadly as a wide variety of activities for the gospel. That's why the NIV, New International uh, uh, Version, translates this verse as, and we are 
sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. Yes, preaching the gospel is commendable, but so is any service to the gospel. Perhaps his brother was a preacher, but I don't think that's Paul's main point. The brother lived in such a way that served the gospel, that advanced, uplifted, held out the gospel. He had a reputation through all the churches for his service to the gospel. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, can that be said of us? In showing hospitality to those who are different than us, in sharing openly about our struggles and our need for Christ, in reading the Bible with others, in praying for the advance of the gospel among the unreached and unengaged, in serving the unwanted in our city, in speaking the truth and love to one another, in building friendships with others in this local church, in all that we do, in any circumstance, are we looking to advance the gospel? We may not all be famous or praised for our gospel service, but as each of us is looking to serve and advance the gospel through intentionally uplifting it and putting it on display in our lives through everything that we do and and whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in, the gospel, when we do that, the gospel will be made known. And in that, as believers, we rejoice. The gospel says that we were all once spiritually dead, unable to help ourselves, deserving of God's wrath, and yet God graciously gave us new life we didn't deserve and could never earn. Now, if that's the gospel that you say that you believe and have received, is your reputation in line with it? What kind of reputation do you have among others? Is it one of gospel service? Is it one that uplifts the gospel? Or is it one that actually undermines the gospel? I know this may be a bit uncomfortable, but I don't think we should really continue until we take the time we need to ask ourselves some hard questions, honest questions. We need to do an honest heart check, not looking to the person that we once were when we first gave credible profession of faith in Christ, but looking at the person that we are right now. Let's ask ourselves, If Jesus is everything to us, then can Jesus be found on our lips? Is he what we talk about with others, even with other brothers and sisters in Christ in this very church? Do we share openly about our struggles, our godly grief, our repentance, our joy in the gospel? Or do we put forward a facade of being strong, good, capable, put together, as if we don't really struggle with sin, and as if we don't really have much need for a savior. If you don't have a desire to love those around you, especially brothers and sisters in Christ in this local church, if you don't have a desire to confess your sins and actually experience the grace that you profess to have received, if you aren't willing to humble yourself and ask for help and thankfully receive it as a gift from God, I'm not really sure if you understand the gospel, no matter how well you may be able to articulate it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if someone were to follow you around for a week, what would they say of you? Would they say that you are intentionally living in such a way that serves and advances the gospel? Would they, would they see you yourself holding fast to the gospel in your own life? Or would they not even be able to tell that you're a Christian? You know, for some, I think we need to be woken up from our slumber. You bear the name Christian but you have little intention of actually representing Christ to those around you. For you, I want to plead with you to fix your eyes on the one you call Lord and Savior. 
He says to you, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You're living a dangerous life right now. You have a false sense of security if you don't stop right now to examine your life and see if it's in accord with the gospel that you profess. And the solution is not to try harder, but to repent and rejoice in what Christ has done for you on the cross over and over and over again. We are wretched sinners, and yet God, in His love and grace, has made us sons and daughters. Let that soak in over and over and over again. Soak in afresh how worthy and deserving is Jesus Christ of your whole life. More than anything else in your life, Jesus Christ gave His life for you. He alone is worthy of your life. And I pray that you would show that. It it would just come out of you and that Jesus himself would bring you to the place once again where you can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If that's you, don't just confess that in private, but share that with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's help each other live according to the gospel that we profess. Now, for many others, I really am encouraged and inspired by you as I talk with you and see firsthand how the gospel of Jesus Christ has not only been a one-time profession on your lips, but an all-encompassing truth that has permeated all of your life. I want to thank you for your gospel service and how your life reverberates the gospel. You've been honest about your sins rather than trying to cover them up. You've been pursuing friendships with people who are different than you in our church. You've been reminding yourself and others of your identity in Christ rather than in family, work, approval, marriage, or other relationships. You've taken steps of faith, even willing to risk social awkwardness for the sake of loving another person enough to share about Christ and invite them to read God's word with you. You've given sacrificially and generously of your time, treasures, and talents to the local church, to missional initiatives, to the work of missions. And I pray that your gospel service, our gospel service as a whole church, and the gospel service of all of God's people would adorn and advance and serve and uplift the gospel of Jesus Christ to the whole world around us. So for this unnamed brother, he had a reputation of gospel service. And verse 19 then says, And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So this brother was trusted and appointed by the churches to travel with Paul to collect, handle, and transport this large sum of money from the Gentile churches to the needy Jewish church in Jerusalem. It would have been a dangerous task and a very tempting task to handle that much money over a long distance. So why did they choose this unnamed brother? Again, it was because of his reputation of gospel service. If your whole life is saturated with the gospel, you will gain trust with people. You prove yourself to be trustworthy. If you can be honest about your sins, then you'll be honest about money. If you've demonstrated that Christ is your all in all, then money is not your all. If you've shown a life of personal sacrifice and generosity in your time, treasures, and talents, then you have no reason to hoard or steal money. So this unnamed brother was commended for his reputation for gospel service. And the third commendation is honorability in the sight of God and man. So verses 20 and 21 say this, 
We take this course so that no one should... Un- so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, and not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So here, Paul is commending himself and his companions and the steps that they've taken to make sure that nobody questions their integrity in handling these funds that are to be delivered to the church in Jerusalem. His aim is what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. His aim is to be a man of integrity. And so they take great pains to ensure that they are above reproach in, in, in this whole situation. Paul wrote earlier to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1-4, to 4, uh, this. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So here, Paul makes sure that the people that carry this gift to Jerusalem are people that their church accredits by letter in writing, not people that Paul handpicks himself. And on top of that, Paul doesn't even assume that the churches want him to go, but only if it seems advisable. So Paul is making sure that nobody can say that he mishandled these funds, even as he's organizing it. Is this just Paul caring too much about what other people think of him? No. This is the man who once said, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul cared about what people thought of him only in as much as it hindered his gospel witness. Paul cared what people thought about him only in as much as it hindered his gospel witness. You know, this collection was supposed to witness to the gospel unity shared between the Gentile churches and the Jewish church in Jerusalem. This collection was supposed to witness to the generous gift that they've all received in Christ, which motivated all the churches to give generously to their fellow brothers and sisters. And all of that could have been undermined if they opened themselves up to scrutiny and accusation for mishandling these funds. Rather than positively showcasing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have negatively focused all attention on whether Paul and his companions were honest or not about handling these funds. If people reject the gospel because of the truth of the gospel, God's word says that's to be expected. But if people reject the gospel because the integrity of the Christian is in question, that is a tragedy. That's a tragedy. We should take every feasible effort to do what is honorable in the sight of God and man so that we are above reproach and our integrity is not called into question because our gospel witness is at stake. And this is not just in the realm of financial integrity, but this is true for every area of our lives. And when I was a university student, I decided to regularly wake up early to go to morning prayer before my classes started. But in the winter, it was a long walk in the snow from my apartment to the place where morning prayer was held. So one night, after hanging out at an all-girls apartment with some friends, I asked if I could sleep over their apartment uh, because they lived right next to where morning prayer was held. And they were fine with it, so I slept on their couch and I went to morning prayer the next day. But then after morning prayer, uh, one of my friends challenged me about my decision uh, that night to sleep over at the all-girls place. And to be honest... I didn't like his challenge and I argued a lot with him uh, and trying to justify my decision and how it was understandable. But I'm really thankful that he was loving and patient with me. He heard me out. But then he asked me, 
You know, what do you think other people would think if they saw you stroll out of the girl's apartment at six in the morning? Would you advise that other people sleep over girls' apartments? And then I began to see his point. You know, he wasn't necessarily saying I had done anything wrong, but I had acted unwisely. I unnecessarily put my gospel witness in jeopardy out of sheer convenience. And since then, I've taken steps to inconvenience myself a bit from time to time so as not to risk my gospel witness. You know, I never want to underestimate my own depravity and I never want anything in my life to be a stumbling block for others to hear and trust in the gospel. That was Paul's perspective as well. And so it was no bother to him to inconvenience himself a bit and invite accountability for the sake of the gospel. So what area or areas in your life right now might potentially discredit your gospel witness? What questionable decisions are you making? Where are you not above reproach? Maybe it's the way that you spend your time or your money. Maybe it's the way you interact with people of the opposite gender. Maybe it's the way you speak to your family members. Now, if you know that about yourself, are you willing to inconvenience yourself and invite accountability for the sake of the gospel? If not, why not? You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's your own decision. But you should soberly ask yourself, do I care more about my own convenience and comfort than I do about my gospel witness? You know, this is in the realm of wisdom, not sin. So though you, we should challenge one another in this area and we should be open to, to others challenging us in this area, we have liberty of conscience here. But still, God's word says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we should prayerfully consider how we live and to, and to make sure as much as it's up to us that it's in a way that's honorable in the sight of God and man for the sake of our gospel witness. So Paul commended himself and his companions for being honorable in the sight of God and man for the sake of their gospel witness. And the fourth commendation is now having proven earnestness in many matters. Proven earnestness in many matters. So verse 22 says this, And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more, more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So here, Paul is commending another unnamed brother. And from the next verse, we know that the other churches have also appointed him to go with Paul to transport the money uh, to the Jerusalem church. And this brother is commended for having been often tested and found earnest in many matters. If you've noticed, the word earnestness in various forms have, have been used multiple times in our passages for today. But it's actually a, a difficult word to translate. So other Bible versions translate earnest here as diligent, zealous, and eager, trying to get at what this word means. So this brother has been often tested and found earnest or diligent, zealous, eager in many matters. Perhaps another way to capture this word is faithful. Not just in what he's doing, but in how he does it. And notice, that's who he is. He's faithful in many matters. Now, can that be said of you? You may be diligent at work, but are you just as diligent at diet and exercise? You may be zealous about growing a startup, but are you just as zealous about serving your spouse and discipling your kids? 
You may be eager to serve at church, but are you just as eager to serve your family and neighbors? You may be earnest in things that increase your personal gain, but are you just as earnest in doing what is right, even at great personal loss? Why is this important? Because we are all whole persons. Whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole persons. We are not dichotomized beings. We cannot be one person in the workplace and then a totally different person in the home. Who you are at work should be who you are at home. Who we are in public should be who we are in private. And if that's not how it is for you, it's only a matter of time when who you truly are comes out. If you get angry in traffic, it's only a matter of time when that anger comes out in your friendships. If you're lazy with your personal discipline, it's only a matter of time until that laziness comes out in the workplace. If you're apathetic in your workplace, it's only a matter of time when that apathy comes out in your family. I think all of us can be called earnest in one or two matters. But are we earnest in many matters? You know, earnest doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means that we're not complacent with the status quo in any area of our lives. But we diligently, zealously, eagerly seek God to sanctify us to make us more like Christ in every area of our lives. We say, God, we need you. In our weakness and feelings of hopelessness, we cry out to God, help us. We want to be more faithful than we're capable of. So we desperately cry out for his grace to make us more faithful, more earnest in every area of our lives. So what area are you struggling to be earnest in right now? Your own overall health, your relationship with God, your family, your work, your church, your neighbor. May it never be said of you that you're unfaithful or that you're not earnest in many matters. But whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for man. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this unnamed brother was tested and proven earnest in many matters. And so he was trusted and appointed by the churches and he was commended by Paul to the Corinthians. And verse 23 then says this, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So this is basically a summary verse of all of Paul's commendations for Titus and these two unnamed brothers that that he's going to be sending ahead of them, uh, ahead of himself to the Corinthian church. But what I want us to notice here is that phrase, the glory of Christ. Earlier, Paul wrote that the whole purpose of this collection and distribution uh, was for the glory of the Lord himself. So God's glory is the outward or visible manifestation of who God is. Let me say that again. God's glory is the outward or physical manifestation of who God is. We glorify God then by living in such a way that manifests or makes visible who God truly is. When a father loves his son, we see the glory of God. When a friend forgives and reconciles with the friend that hurt her, we see the glory of God. When we show mercy to those who deserve wrath, we see the glory of God. When we humbly serve others, even at personal cost, we see the glory of God. Here in verse 23, the glory of Christ can actually be related to the messengers or the churches themselves. But either way, it actually doesn't make much of a difference. Because if the glory of Christ is the outward or visible manifestation of who God is, then these messengers whom Paul has been commending definitely showcase who Christ is. But even more so, churches that are made up of those who have given credible profession of faith ought to showcase to the world who Christ is. 
not just individuals, but corporately as churches. We ought to showcase who Christ is. In fact, Christians and churches are only as commendable as they display the truth of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And that leads us to the fifth and last commendation in our passage today. Ready, willing, and generous giving. Chapter 8, verse 24 to chapter 9, verse 5 say this. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So here, Paul says that he's been commending the Corinthian church to the other churches about their ready, willing, and generous desire to give. But now it's time for them to prove or show that what Paul has been saying about them is true. Paul has already written to the Corinthian church about the collection for the Jerusalem church. And a year ago, the Corinthians themselves already expressed their earnest desire to participate. And they made a promise to give towards their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, Paul told the Macedonians about the Corinthians' desire to give. And that stirred up the Macedonians to give as well. And now, before Paul comes with some of the Macedonian brothers and representatives from other churches, he's sending Titus and the two unnamed brothers uh, ahead of him to make sure that the Corinthians are ready to follow through on what they had promised to give. Otherwise, what was supposed to be a testimony to the gospel unity they had in Christ across Gentile and Jewish churches would become an anti-testimony. If Paul and his entourage showed up and the Corinthian church did not seem ready to give, no matter what they did in that moment, it would not seem like a willing gift, but an exaction, as if Paul was twisting their arms to give or as if they were giving simply to save face. And that's not a testimony to the gospel. Of course, Paul knows that's not true. He says, I know your readiness. And earlier he wrote that one of the unnamed brothers had great confidence in the Corinthian church. But even if Paul knew that it wasn't an exaction, if the Corinthians weren't practically ready to give by the time that he got there with the other representatives, that would be the general impression. If they showed up and no money was laid aside and everyone was just pulling whatever money they had from their pockets, they would not seem like the Corinthian church that Paul talked about, that earnestly desired to give and had promised to give a year ago. Let's say your good friend owned a restaurant and you highly commended that restaurant to your future father-in-law who you know is a foodie. Would you say anything to your friend who owned the restaurant ahead of time? You know, I think most of us would. Is it because we don't think that our friend's restaurant is any good? No, we know it's good and we want our future father-in-law to think so too. So we let our friend know that he's coming And we ask our friend to make every effort to prove or show themselves to be the good restaurant that we know them to be. I'm sure we've all had bad experiences at restaurants that were recommended to us. And no matter what anyone says to us after that one bad experience, it's forever labeled in our minds as a bad restaurant. When it comes to restaurant recommendations, you really only have one shot 
to make a good impression. And that's kind of what was going on here in this passage. The Corinthian church was genuinely eager to give. But unless they practically had the funds collected and ready beforehand, it wouldn't seem that way. And there wouldn't be any way to undo that bad impression. They only had one shot at this. So Paul graciously sends Titus and these two unnamed brothers with this letter to go ahead of them to get them ready so that they can prepare their actions to match their genuine intent. And from other scripture, we actually know what eventually happened. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So Corinth was the capital of Achaia. And they were pleased to contribute to the saints in Jerusalem when Paul and the other church representatives arrived. So they completed what they had earnestly desired to do, proving what Paul had commended them about, that they were ready, willing, and generous in giving. Now, how was this ready, willing, generous giving in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Simply, it is at the heart of the gospel. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And again, for God so loved the world that he gave. God graciously and lavishly gives to the undeserving. God graciously and lavishly gives to the undeserving. That is the heart of the gospel. And so as believers and recipients of the inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ, we should be characterized by and commended for ready, willing, and generous giving. A stingy Christian or a hoarding Christian should be an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. May we not only have a desire to give generously, but may we follow through so that both in our desire and in our completion of generous giving, we may prove and show a genuine love for Christ who gave his life for us. So whether it's individual Christians or local churches, I pray that we would inspire these five commendations from all those around us so that the gospel will shine forth and the glory of Christ will be made manifest through us. So once again, the one thing for today is be commendable for living according to the gospel. Be commendable for living according to the gospel. Here's a life application, and it's a question to think through for ourselves. Which of the five commendations are most questionable for you? Is it earnest care for others? Reputation of gospel service? Honorability in the sight of God and man? Proven earnestness in many matters? Ready, willing, and generous giving? Now, which ones are most questionable for you? And how do you need to repent for misrepresenting Christ and his gospel? And how do you need to rejoice in what Christ has done for you in the gospel? And who can you share with and invite accountability from in your fellowship of Christ? As a church, let's live such lives together that in every area of our lives, the gospel is commended and Christ is glorified through us. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.